Coming up in the first hour, we're going to talk Mitt Romney, digital church trends, and can I actually trust the four Gospels even if they don't necessarily agree? This is The Common Good. Everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Also on Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Plus, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And for the third day in a row, Brian Fromm, can they ask Alexa? <laughs> You're just doing this now. Because you, you know can make it all it. end by just actually doing it. Right, tomorrow's the day. Monday. Monday is going to be the day. <laughs> like you're casting out yeah. tomorrow. Monday's the day. Monday's the day. You think giving yourself more time? I need will make the it weekend. Mm. I need the weekend. Completely understand. I feel badly. <laughs> Remember my guilt. You're do, just, do you do you feel? It's hard to listen to someone say I feel badly as they giggle. It is. Uh, that's a great point. It is. Uh, I did go to. Uh, I did uh, go see a counselor the other day. We were talking about some stuff, and he said, "Do you know whenever you say something uh, bad, you always giggle?" And I went, "Well, now I'm like going to be self conscious about that." <laughs> <laughs> that is sort of the double edged sort of uh, therapy because yes. they'll tell you stuff, and you're like, "Well, shoot, he I said do that me, all the time." <laughs> this is now I'm doing therapy over the radio. He I'm goes, "He goes, you hydroplane over your feelings." I said, "Oh, okay." And then he goes, "Whenever you say something difficult or that could be like negative, yeah. you giggle over it." And I was Interesting. Like, Hmm. Hydroplane is a pretty interesting term. It was though. a good word too. Let's talk about this for a moment. He actually told me it was really good. Actually, he told me you're really good with other people's feelings. Yeah. Because I'm like I'm a feeler. Like I test like that. He goes, No, let me explain. He goes, You're really good with other people's feelings. You hydroplane over your own. Hmm. He goes, and then he proceeded to tell me I giggle whenever I say anything hard or sad. You might be an Enneagram three. That's a very I still distinct need to take that test. So yeah. Alexa and Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> By Monday, we can't yeah. wait to hear both of them because I do the same thing. But uh, we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. So, yeah. <laughs> But to pay somebody to tell you that is wonderful. <laughs> no, I love this counselor. It was awesome. It was great. It was great. All right. So uh, so Mitt Romney, I don't know if you turned on the uh, the old Facebooks today and yeah. saw any of this. He, he came up every now and it, then. Every now and then. In the Twitter. Like every conversation <laughs> I've had today, someone's asking about Mitt Romney. So why don't you fill us in a little bit? Give us the big uh, umbrella story, and then we'll dive into the details a little well, bit. Well, the big umbrella story is the impeachment hearings of President Trump. And uh, one of the goals of the Republicans, or especially of Donald Trump, was to they knew that the Democrats were going to all vote to remove him from office. I think there was some hope they could pull a couple. uh, But uh, he really wanted the White House really wanted uh, the optics, uh, the visual of all the Republicans voting for uh, acquittal. Right. Uh, And all of them did but one. Uh, And we know him well, Mitt Romney. He ran for president uh, in what was it? Oh, eight. Was it oh, eight? 2012, yeah, 2012, and uh, it just came to me, and uh, <laughs> the beauty of a producer, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, and he lost to Barack Obama. Uh, he is now a senator from Utah, and uh, he voted uh, on one of the two articles of impeachment to remove President Trump, and so um, this created a firestorm. There was a uh, an Instagram post, I believe, from Donald Trump Jr. that can't, cannot be. Uh, <laughs> repeated on these airs mm-hmm. and uh, it went crazy. And so uh, there was just this tearing of Mitt Romney from one side. And then the other side who have been tearing at Mitt Romney, his whole career were cheering Mitt Romney. And mm-hmm. so uh, Mitt Romney's kind of out on this Island. There was talk like we need to get him removed from the Republican party, all of this stuff. 
There was a point yesterday where, uh, on my Twitter feed at least, all of the trending topics had to do with Mitt Romney, yeah. uh, including your favorite, Pierre Delecto. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the background. Oh, my that, favorite. I don't think you love to bring that up. But <laughs> so, so that is kind of the background is that, uh, that Mitt Romney voted against his entire party. And now people are kind of psychoanalyzing what caused him to do that. But I don't know if you saw his speech. Uh, it was really powerful. Like he teared up talking about his religion. He teared up uh, and he just talked about like, I feel driven to do what I think is right. And uh, a lot of this goes back to what you believe about Mitt Romney. I personally, in watching it, I I gained great respect for him. Like he had to have woken up in the morning and gone, uh, this is not good. This is going to be a terrible day for me if I go through with this. Or I could just vote with everybody else and kind of slide along. And he put his neck out there. So regardless, in my opinion, what you believe politically about what he did, I at least feel like you've got to admire uh, the courage of the move. Although I think that I'm less cynical than a lot of people out there on either side. So the headline out of the Washington Post said that no senator ever voted to remove a president of his uh, party from office until Mitt Romney. So we shared the article and uh, we mentioned all the time. Head to the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook because that is where a lot of our interactions happen. I want to read a couple of things that people shared. David Cook said, at this point, most reactions are political. History will judge him, the other participants, and the president, but that will be years from now. I want to believe he was sincere. He did vote to acquit on one count. Unlike many, uh, I did not hail him or curse him. His true motives are known to him and God. Hero, maybe. Goat, maybe. Time will tell. (laughs) So, So David's... General postures, it's hard to say. Uh, Mickey O'Connor said the underlying message is that these voters have only ever followed party lines, which means nothing else was taken into account. Facts, law, and morality had no bearing on these decisions. This mm. also means the vote neither indicts or exonerate, exonerates broken is broken. Diane Cliff said he voted his conscience, and from what I've read, he knew the consequences of that vote. This could cost him his political career. Mm-hmm. I only hope that if I was in a similar situation where the majority was completely against me, I would do the same. Then Huber, he said he swore an oath to God, and I respect him for honoring that. It's not up to us to criticize him. Um, it definitely makes him a footnote. This is what Joe Jenkins says, a footnote in history and probably a trivia question in the future. Mm-hmm. Odd that two or three years ago he was at the White House for a job interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's Stan, the cynical part. You what? <laughs> There's the cynical part. Right. right. Well, <laughs> so let, me get, let me get to Stan. So Stan said, not surprising he has connections to Ukraine alongside the Bidens and Clintons. Curious that he is the one Republican to vote to convict. And there's the really cynical part. <laughs> right. Well, and then so my buddy Justin weighs in. He says, wait, so you don't take his religious conviction narrative seriously? Why not? Is anyone who opposes the president doing so out of legitimate moral, ethical sincerity? And Stan said, I just find it curious that those with Ukraine connections want him out. I'm sure some are doing it legitimately. I just, uh, I was just responding to what I found curious about mm-hmm. Romney in particular, not everyone at large. So mm-hmm. as you can hear, um, which is, again, what I really appreciate about the diversity of our audience. Yeah. Not everyone's on the same page and people have their own presuppositions and suspicions. And I'm sure not everyone feels like what you just stated, praising his courage. Uh, I've seen quite the opposite. For sure. Yeah. Sometimes Twitter and Facebook will do that. But I'm curious for someone who's like, you know what? I don't I don't know what I feel or how to respond to any of this. What would you say is the most important thing to remember and walking through this story? For me, it is, again, it goes back to whether you believe him or not. So I'm going to take the guy at his word. And he said, you know what? The most important thing for him was the oath that he took before God, not the expedient move, not what would be political. uh, It would help him in the future. Again, a lot of people don't believe him, but I I tend to. And he said, 
I took an oath before God. I'm profoundly religious. My faith is at the heart of who I am. And so therefore this oath is enormously consequential. Yeah. And it caused him to have to take a stand against everybody in his party. That's what I find commendable in this, even if you disagree with him, yeah. is it appears that he at least was standing up on his uh, his belief system rather than what would have been politically expedient. And I think mm. I think there's a lot of takeaways from that. And so I think you could hate everything he said and still applaud him for his courage. I also know that's not how our political world works right now. <laughs> or ever. I don't <laughs> know if that's ever yeah, yeah. necessarily. I think that for me the big takeaway is to dance like no one's watching. That's <laughs> that's like my no big takeaway from this Mitt Romney story. <laughs> no, nothing. I like it. <laughs> Dance like no one's watching. I mean, when you're homeschooled, that's pretty much usually true. There's no one else around. It is easy to be cynical, right? Romney ran for president and lost. Trump ran for president and won. Oh, the cynicism isn't. Romney wanted to be what? Secretary of State, maybe? Uh, Or one of those and wasn't. (laughs) He wasn't taking it. You know, Trump didn't give him the job. Like, you could see where the cynicism comes. I just am tired of being cynical. So I'm going to I'm going to applaud him for his courage regardless of what you don't believe. Don't hydroplane your feelings, Brian. Yep. Don't hydroplane my feelings. <laughs> I'm going to giggle through that. <laughs> Deal. All right, so coming up next I want to talk about uh religious liberties and a pastor that we've mentioned before, Rich Velotis made a uh, a tweet. Made a tweet? Tweeted? Tweeted. How do children say this? How do <laughs> Better than we do. That's true. Either way, I want to talk about religious liberty for Christians and the rest of the world coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, or WILL.com. I don't know if the uh, slash Common Good works or not. But both websites work. Yes, they do. Just want everyone to be aware. You don't know that. I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm confident they do. You're confident in my uh, assessment of yes. their functionality. Uh, you can go on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Plus, we are podcasted. And wherever you get your podcast, if you have the capacity, willingness, and bandwidth to like, subscribe, or review, uh, that does really help us out. You, you were saying yesterday, maybe, that you were going to go read our reviews. Did you ever do that? I didn't find, like, just on Google, I didn't find any reviews. Oh, no, on the podcast. Oh, I've read those before. They're good. No, uh, brutal. Really? Oh, man, yeah. I don't think they were. Oh, just, uh, just. I feel like you're being sarcastic. No, soul crushing. <laughs> I don't even know who I am anymore. <laughs> like that Now kinda. I know you're sarcastic. What? No. That, which part gave it away? The soul crushing. The soul crushing part. Yes. I went too big. Too big, too fast. All right, yes. so here's... Um, Here's a tweet, and we've talked about him before. So Rich Vilodas, who is the, I believe, the pastor that uh, seceded, seceded? <laughs> succeeded. Succeeded. <laughs> he did succeeded his church. Oh, boy. Simpkins, <laughs> pull it together. Uh, Peter Scazzaro, the author of Emotionally oh, Healthy Relationships, Emotionally Healthy Leadership. Um, pretty, pretty great follow on social media has yeah. some, he just has a good, like, I think pastoral perspective. Anyway, he, so Peter Scazzaro was the pastor. Yes, is what you're saying. And I then I think so. He moved on, did some other stuff in Rich the Lotus. Is that how you say his name? Yeah. This all stuff I could have researched ahead of time sure. to okay. make sure that I'm true and I'm not entirely sure. I'm good with it. Okay. <laughs> you're like good I enough. do like, I see him pop up a lot on social media. I don't oh, happen do? to follow him. I will. Uh, but I see him pop up a lot, like on retweets and such. Yeah, I think I think you'd appreciate his perspective. He might be the new Scott Sauls. Oh, that's blasphemy. <laughs> Are you crying right he now? He could be part of the Scott Sauls team. Oh, boy. Yes. Does he have a social media team? Scott Sauls, if you're listening, we apologize for that. Oh, I just, <laughs> wow. 
Okay, that's fair. <laughs> Here's what he tweeted. You ready? Yes. Uh, if the only religious liberty Christians fight for is Christianity, we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves, as our Lord commanded us to. Which um, I will admit, it's a little frustrating when somebody puts so much more eloquently what you've been mm-hmm. saying for the last year on a radio station. <laughs> yes, it's a great. I like point. I read that. I was like, oh, why don't we just say this? That is. But you're right. We you had said this off air. This is sort of a general sentiment that we have both uh, expressed. You in particular, having kids in junior high and high school, and yep. some of these other conversations yep. we've had. Uh, I'd be curious first, just sort of, what are some of your reactions to that in general, especially having you know talked about some of the State of the Union scandal mm-hmm. and disagreement and firestorm. So some of this is probably loosely yep. connected, but uh, how does how does this hit you? I, I uh, agree very much so with what he's saying here, yeah. and I'm not sure we do a good job with this hmm. um, because uh, oftentimes when Christians speak of religious liberty, we're only talking about other Christians, right. and that's important, um, but but – for there to be true religious liberty within our culture, there needs to be liberty for all religions, whether you agree with them or not. That's what makes a free culture a free culture, right. a free society. That's it. You, you referenced my kids in their public school. I've said I don't want them being taught Christianity in their school because I also don't want them being taught you know, Islam and Buddhism and atheism and whatever else other than as like academic subjects. I'm okay with that. In fact, my daughter Mm -hmm. did learn all of those and I was able to walk her through a lot of it. Um, But I don't think, and and here's the, here's the rub for those of you who might be going, Oh, I I totally disagree with you. What happens if, and when Christianity becomes the minority religion, Hmm. then you're going to be, you will no longer be the center of all religious Liberty discussions, right? Mm -hmm. Like right now, yeah, we're on the team, if you will, of the majority religion. Um, and I know there's lots of different forms under that umbrella, but in general, under the under the umbrella of Christian, uh, that is still the majority religion within our culture. But what if there was a day where that's not true? Right. I'm not talking years from now, but generations from now. Uh, and he frames it much differently than the way I'm saying, because he frames it around loving your neighbor. Right. And right. I think that adds a powerful level to it, a powerful layer, because. Uh, when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor, it's not about loving the person who's just like you. Right. Uh, and so I do think when we talk about religious liberty, which I believe in very much, I think it's uh, it's right there embedded in our Constitution. And we need to have that conversation. But we have to be secure enough as Christians to go. No, I want religious liberty for the Muslim. I want religious liberty for the Buddhist. Yeah. yeah. I want religious liberty for the Christian uh, and and be OK with that. Well, let me let me see how you'd answer this. So I actually pull up the tweet, not just the photo of the tweet. And uh, so Bradley Dar said, I agree in a general sense. How does this reconcile with all the Old Testament tearing down of pagan altars and idols? Mm. How would you respond to that? I, I just think for me, it's different when we're talking about the, the government, the mm. culture. I think the government makes it different. We're not talking about a state sponsored religion in which everybody has to follow. We're saying that people and this is part of our Constitution. This is part of what makes us. Uh, who we are as a nation, that people have the right. Right. Doesn't mean their religion, we are saying, is right. Right. But they have the right hmm. to uh, to practice their religion without fear that the government is going to infringe upon that. Obviously, there are there are nuances to that and other mm-hmm. things. Uh, but that in our Constitution is not just a right for Christians. That's a right for all religion. And I would suggest that once you start pulling those liberties away from other religions, uh, they're going to come for you next. Yeah. Uh, and and so we've got to be careful. And, and again, as he frames it as loving our neighbor, I think is a powerful way to frame it, too, uh, because we are called to stand up for, for the 
um, for the people who are uh, in the minority, uh, who are not in the power. And so I think his framing of it is even different from the way I'm framing it. But I think both are important. Let me let me read his response. So, you know, again, if you're just joining us, uh, Pastor Rich Filota said, if the only religious liberty Christians fight for is Christianity, then we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves, as our Lord commanded us. This guy, Bradley Dar said, I agree in a general sense. How does this reconcile with all the Old Testament tearing down of pagan altars and idols? Rich said, uh, in short, my answer is USA is not ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, he responded. So Bradley responded and said, yes, the context seems to have changed even into the New Testament with less tearing others down. When enmeshed with the state, the church seems to only like liberty for the particular system that has the greatest influence. Mm-hmm. Parenthetically, their own. Uh, a little bit later, so Robert Volk said, number one, you're correct, given our democratic society concerning religious liberty. Number two, loving our neighbors as self must include verbal acknowledgement that there are no other gods other than the one triune sovereign God. How would you respond to that particular comment? Uh, for me, uh, you know, not to... Uh, to keep going back to the same thing for me, th- this is a there are two different conversations hmm. when we're talking about the government, liberty it, specifically, right? liberty specifically. Yeah. This is a constitutional issue. This isn't a which religion is right issue. Hmm. And in fact, we don't want our government infringing upon our ability to have that conversation with people. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I think it's I don't necessarily think the two go hand in hand. I think there is a difference between the two. How about yourself? Well, I, I kind of want to read a couple of other responses yeah, that go I think ahead. will sort of answer. One said, uh, you cannot advocate for your own faith by decrying someone else's faith. And somebody said, well, that hasn't stopped the, uh, the Islamists. And then this person said it should stop us. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little bit of snark there. But one person said this is a. Um, uh, Kaylin McDaniel, uh, if it is even our primary battle, we have lost the Christian tradition of fighting on behalf of the vulnerable for our own safety. Um, I do find this one interesting, though. Someone said, Christ still corrected the theology of the Samaritan woman. We must help others and simultaneously evangelize with truth. And the person responded and said, that's your takeaway from this story? <laughs> so again, uh, it is sort of a hot button issue and one that it feels like will probably be evergreen, but is particularly like on the lips and minds of people now. And I just know you in particular, you have advocated for this conversation uh, almost since day one on this show, to be honest. I just don't think by advocating for somebody else's freedom and liberty, you're necessarily agreeing with them. Those don't go hand in hand. And so I think we have to separate those two. And, and why do you think that's so rare, actually? To, I mean, to to understand the distinction. We're, we're tribal. We, we like the people who are like us and who agree with us, who are on our team. Yeah. And we don't tend to give a lot of thought, even though Jesus did. We don't tend to give a lot of thought to the people who aren't in our tribe or on our team. Yeah, that's a tragedy. But something that I think we can do better at. Well, coming up next, uh, Mr. Kerry Newhoff, Mr. Pastor Kerry Newhoff, has mm-hmm. a, uh, an article called Five Digital Shifts That Are Impacting Church Growth. I want to talk about some of those coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, Ian Simpkins here. And after we had this marriage conference with Thrivent and two other local churches, it kind of piqued my interest to learn more about this organization. We had such a good response with them at the conference. I was kind of interested in seeing what else they did. And so they actually provided me with this list of like 12 or 13 different topics that they offer free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And the thing that was crazy is that each of these topics were things that people in my church were actually asking me, things that I didn't really know how to talk about. And so 
they offered numerous free workshops for the people in our church to help them be wise with money and to live generously. And let me tell you, it was this really beautiful sort of no strings attached kind of a, we want to help you do this better. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with Thrivent and being really grateful for the ways that they were coming alongside us and the local churches around us. And if you're interested at all in learning more, I cannot encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web if you want to. Uh, if you are the reviewing type, which I don't talk about this enough, you can give reviews and subscriptions and likes to the podcast, but you can also do it on Facebook. And somehow all of that does actually help generate some kind of traffic, helps it kind of bump up in the search feeds and all that stuff. So if you're a podcaster or a Facebook person and you have just a couple of seconds to spare, any of that interaction does really, really help us out. I think even if you're not a fan, I think even that will help us somehow. That might not be right, but (laughs) yeah, why not? We'll we'll see what happens. Either way, we would appreciate uh, any any level of interaction you'd be willing to give us there. Um, Before we dive into this five Five digital trends that are affecting church and church growth. Uh, the new year is underway, and our friends at In Touch Ministries want to bless you with a complimentary wall calendar called Blessed to Be the Church, featuring Charles Stanley's original photography of churches around the world. So there's an inspirational Bible verse from the Sermon on the Mount, plus a motivated, motivational quote from Dr. Stanley accompanying each photo. You can get yours today at 1160hope.com slash contest, and it's totally free. Plus, everyone who signs up will be entered to win a copy of the Charles Stanley Life Principles Bible. Sign up today at 1160hope.com slash contest. Uh, so digital trends and shifts is something that you and I are, are both aware of. And I want this conversation to be um, m- more broad than just simply for pastors and churches. Mm-hmm. But I think that a lot of, in a lot of cases, how churches uh, adapt and grow and shift often do look like microcosms of what's happening in the culture, uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. And so this is uh, from Kerry Newhoff, who I don't know if you're a Kerry Newhoff guy, if you read Kerry no- Newhoff. Not or you okay, so he's fully aware of him. His, his, his capacity to crank out content is nuts, but yeah. he's got a phenomenal podcast. He's got a really incredible blog. I used to read, you know, when I was leading the Poplar, um, a good deal of like staff devotionals and trainings I would draw from stuff that he had written. So I've been following this guy for a long time, but he wrote a blog called Five Digital Shifts That Are Impacting Church Growth. So again, he's writing as a as a pastor and all that. He's not actually the author even of this article, but that's sort of the perspective. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me get into the introduction here. Yeah. And it says, um, the ever-increasing shifts in culture seem to be at warp speed. That which uh, would have taken 10 years now happens in a matter of months, which is a little scary. Uh, for example, a church with a few hundred attendees can reach a thousand or more when viewed online or a church with a few thousand people during a live service can turn into a church of hundreds of thousands. And while lots of people have questions about whether this is a good thing or not, the truth is this is the age we live in. In the past, the church has often been a late bloomer in the cultural trends mm-hmm. racing behind to keep up instead of being a trendsetter. They, uh, there are elements and shifts that are beyond our leadership that affect church growth. You can be a good leader and communicator and yet your church can be in decline simply because you're not making certain shifts toward the digital world. After all, everybody you want to reach is online. And if you're not there, 
you are missing them. Here are five digital shifts that affect church growth. Why don't you give us number one? Number one, digital has become the new normal. The new normal for many growing and multi-site churches is for people to watch the message on a video screen. Yeah. The pastor preaches at one or maybe two services. The message is aired in other services or campuses on a big screen. What was strange years ago is now normal. We all consume large amounts on screens. Younger adults have fully embraced a digital platform and are very comfortable watching the message digitally at a live service. This is revolutionary. Embracing the digital platform helps prevent burnout of the lead communicator and allows for easier expansion to reach the community beyond the traditional four four walls of the church. You may be asking, why would people attend a service to experience the message digitally? Great question. Uh, And then they go on because they want a now downloadable experience. So basically they're saying churches that shift to a mindset that the pulpit is not just live, but it is also digital will reach more people and experience growth over the next decade. Do you find that to be true? Uh, it sure seems like it. I mean, everything seems to be moving digital. And, Are you guys uh, heading in that direction, you think? No. These kinds of articles make me think. <laughs> yeah. Make me go, okay, we really? got to have these conversations. Well, you guys have audio on your website, For sure. right? And your For podcast. Sure. Do you podcast uh-huh. it, though? Or? Uh-huh. Okay. So that's yep. all searchable. Yep. Why, why, why does this make you think that there's actually more that you think you want to... Oh, I, nothing. I believe all this stuff, and I believe yeah. it all to be true. A lot of times, you know how it works, especially in churches our size. You just get so lost in your day-to-day keeping things going right. that you can, you can have to really pause to go, wait a minute, we need a bigger conversation yeah, here. So none right. of this is... I have to wonder if this is true. Totally get it. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to be able to put the resources and the people behind to implement well. Well, and, and just before I forget, to, this is a guest post written by Angela Faith, Digital Strategy at one of our most trusted partners, Pro Webfire. So uh, this is not Carrie. This is a guest writer, but it's, I think, a really interesting article. Number two of the five shifts, digital shifts happening in the church. Uh, apps aren't your front door. Websites are. This one's interesting. With the invention of smartphones came the rise of apps. There was a short trend that suggested church apps would completely replace church websites. It was similar to those saying email would die. But today, the opposite has happened. Uh, emails and websites are stronger than ever. Surprisingly, nobody visits an app to check check out a church. Why? Because they Google their question and Google leads them to websites, not apps. The venture through the church website creates a digital experience that allows the church to have a voice and speak into the person's life or repels them. Uh, the website isn't nearly as much for the con- the congregation as it is for the unchurched people who are searching for answers. What do you think of that one? I think it's it's fa- it's true. We I see it. You probably see it. Yeah, because sure. it's how they say people are going. What do they think if they want to ch- look at community Christian church? And they don't have any uh, way to get there. They go, well, I'm going to Google it. Uh-huh. Google yep. doesn't get them to an app. Google gets them to your website. 100%. And so that becomes your front door. They, as you write, two websites are the digital foyer, which I think is actually, that's a helpful, that's a helpful way of thinking about I it. I think it should be foyer. I was trying really hard not to say foyer. Number three, right or wrong, decisions get made in seconds. Yeah. This is an important one. Digital decisions are lightning fast decisions. In a mere matter of seconds, you make decisions about whether to keep watching a video on YouTube or click away, bringing the level of expectation higher than it's ever been. Hmm. Quality media is expected by those in your community for this reason. Stopping the scroll goes beyond social media and translates into your church website. Interesting. How do you guys do that? I Again, I think there's questions we need to ask about our website. Is it the most effective it can be? But I think that we need to know that people are making decisions also when they show up on Sunday morning within seconds. Right. I read a stat the other day that said, in general, 
uh, people will give up on a video if it does if it pauses for more than ten seconds on oh, your phone. Or that's your, true, isn't it? Hundred percent. How many times have you scrolled past? I, I have a hard time even stomaching like the Facebook ads in the yes. middle of a video. Yes. I'm like thirteen seconds. Nah, I don't nope, got time I'm for out. that. I'm out. <laughs> uh, number four, outreach is also shifting to digital first. Some of you remember the days you go door to door as a church to evangelize. You and I remember those days. Yes, vividly. Yes. Today things have changed. Almost nobody knocks on doors anymore, except couriers and our very own Frank. And when they <laughs> do, uh, it's almost counterproductive. What if you could knock on every cell phone within 30 miles of your church? The good news is you can through Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can literally reach your community digitally and single out those in need, which this is a conversation, especially with like Facebook targeting. Yeah. It's remarkable what you can do, but seeing digital as the outreach um, is super fascinating, but also kind of a seismic shift. I think, especially if you've been doing church ministry for a while. Absolutely. Last one, number five, rural and urban have become more equal. Digital and the internet have reshaped the world. Even in rural communities, people have access to the same media as the big cities. It's flattened our experience and broken down divides that used to exist because of geography and culture. While there used to be a big gap based on location, the average kid in the country has the same access to YouTube and TikTok that the average urban kid does. Hmm. What does this mean for the church? Churches that are more intent, churches that are intentional about creative media will be the ones that are heard in the future. Most young millennial couples will be reluctant to share a post from their church that is an outdated design. Hmm. Media brings the entire world together, and that means the geographical divide that impacted churches a dec- decade ago isn't nearly the factor it used to be. So I'll say this too: when we posted this uh, this article on our Facebook page, and I mentioned that uh, the writer is also um, a part of the Pro Webfire team. People mm-hmm. are asking pretty, at least where I'm at, like. Do you guys have tips or tricks or strategy? And I'm like, oh, gosh, where to even begin? Like, yeah. It feels like we're always learning. Like We have a guy, Brandon Bernicke, who is like kind of owning a lot of our video online stuff. And he loves this stuff. But every time he like shares you know, what they're working on, I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm yeah. so grateful that you are thinking and focused on that. You know, we have a guy, Pat Nelson, that is handling a lot of the targeted marketing stuff. And he's just brilliant. Like He just really? thinks up stuff. I'm like... I wouldn't even know how to get my brain there, to be mm-hmm. honest. So I would encourage you to check it out at the very least and uh, and check out the website. And I think it's a it's a good resource. Coming up next, a question that I think probably both of us have been asked before. What do I do with the Gospels when they are in conflict, when they don't agree with each mm-hmm. other? Is there still hope for trusting these four Gospels? We're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Brian, thanks for sticking around. I'm glad to be here. Really? I know where else to be. <laughs> where else would we go? You are the keeper of truth. <laughs> or, what's the verse? How does that? I don't know. So, what did you say? The keeper of what? Truth. Oh, the Bible. I know. But I don't know which one you're talking Not which Bible you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know which uh, verse you're the talking Protestant, about. The Protestant Bible. <laughs> the non-apocryphal. Um, all right. So a couple places. You can find us on uh, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. 1160hope.com slash the common good on Twitter at common good talk or wherever it is you get your podcast. If you are a podcaster, first off, a sincere thanks. Uh, a little subscribe rate review all does help us out a lot. We're still a fairly new show. When are we not a new show, by the way? I'm not sure we still are. It felt it's, like a year. Yeah. So now we're veterans. We're, oh, wow. Look at us. Uh, is that the only new show, rookies or veterans? There's yes. no number. No we are seasoned radio professionals. Ooh, that, that feels like it has even more gravity. <laughs> uh, all right. So before we get into this article from Christianity Today, uh, I'm wondering if this is the kind of question that you as a pastor get very often. Like, what do I do with the differences between the gospel accounts? Um, is this something that you've taught on or something that people, maybe they're like brand new to the Bible Look, I just started off in Matthew, and then right. 10 days in, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> These are like similar but different. 
Yeah, it's a good question because I can't think of ever having really gotten this kind of explicitly asked of me. Really? Right? Like, well, that's different. Uh, and have I ever taught on it? Uh, not explicitly. Um, because sometimes you're like, I don't want to confuse people, <laughs> right? Like, I want to kind of not delve in that. Some of that's fear. Or, right? or myself. I don't exactly. Yeah. But I do remember going to Wheaton, which is the irony, right? You go to a Christian school and you start getting biblical criticism classes, New Testament criticism, OT crit, or uh, you get these brilliant teachers uh, and they start talking to you about these different theories of how the Bible's put together. And you kind of coming from, you know, sheltered. Uh, church youth group background, you're going, excuse me? Like, hmm. What are you talking about? I don't know if you felt that way when you first like went to Judson or something, but I remember going to Wheaton. I think I told you this story before. When I first went to Wheaton is the first time I had a science teacher explain to me uh, the uh, uh, evolution. And I was like, I thought we'd go to hell if we talk about evolution. Oh, and it's wow. in like bio 201 at Wheaton College right. my freshman year right. where, the, where the guy's talking about evolution theory and this that. I was like, whoa, I want to call home and be like, come get me. <laughs> Uh, but it, I felt a little bit of the same way at Wheaton taking, uh, you know, Old Testament criticism, New Testament right. criticism. And they're talking about, you know, Mark was the first one and maybe Luke. T- and you're just like, hold on a second. This just wasn't handed down yeah, as like right. a completed book. But uh, like chubby cherubs so, just delivered it to Exactly. Us. So I've never had, I, I guess to answer your question, I haven't had a ton of questions. But I know for me, it was a big deal. Yeah. I don't know how you felt when you first kind of uh, – I don't know if if Judson was the first time you you rubbed up against this or if it was before. Yeah, probably. We had a really great um, exegetical professor who would like brace us ahead of time, like, "Hey, just mm-hmm. just so you know, next week is going to shatter some of your worlds." I remember one of the first big assignments <laughs> we had where we got to pick the passage to exegete, and he said, "My advice to you is don't pick a passage you like, oh, because no. my <laughs> guess is once you actually get into this in the way that I'm going to teach you to do it, um, you'll find that your sweet, cute verse that you've been holding on to that you yeah. have needle stitch on a pillow does not actually mean at all yeah. what you think it means. But I thought that was pretty pastoral. Like, hey, just fair warning. It's really good. You get into the weeds in this one and it's probably going to rattle you a little bit. And so. I feel like it's like when you take golf lessons and they say we have to break down your swing before we can rebuild it, but then it'll be better, you know? Yeah, right. I felt like I walked out of Wheaton as a Bible major, like loving the Bible more and understanding the Bible more. But there was some of that tearing down of what I always thought or right. how I always studied it. It was kind of – and that's unnerving yeah, for sure. uh, and hard to do in a church context, quite frankly. Yeah. And so you start – like you said before, you start wading into those waters, and it sometimes can be hard to wade in far enough where you haven't just yeah. blown the people right. out of the water. So that <laughs> well, becomes A lot difficult. of people don't have the time or bandwidth exactly. to wade that deeply. So you think, you know, if I'm a pastor, how do I wade responsibly? Right. But to also be sure to never imply in preaching like, hey – Unless you know Greek and Hebrew, you probably shouldn't be reading this exactly. Bible. Like, because here's what that actually means, or here's what's really going. That can be a weird, difficult needle to thread. Yeah, but what's the passage? It's in right. It's in John, where it's is it Jesus and the stoning of uh, where he says you let him without sin cast the first stone. Isn't that the one where in our Bibles it says this wasn't in the original manuscript? Yeah, right. And it says that. And every time I've talked about that passage, I'm like, don't ask me, don't ask me, don't ask me. <laughs> Other sermons, not Q and A, because it says it right. It's like in italics. Uh, there's always that like parentheses. This was not in the earliest manuscripts. So yeah. Every now and then, people are like, "Excuse me." <laughs> yeah. So wait, what's going on here? And you're yeah, like, yeah. If anyone yeah. wants to uh, get recommendations for books to read to better understand some of that, we could make some recommendations right. offline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I mean, with the uh, couple of minutes we have left here, the the idea of the Gospels and some of their supposed disagreements 
And a number of scholars as of late have been using what are called literary devices mm-hmm. to try to explain the differences that these well, this author is trying to communicate this to a different audience. And there's a Christian philosopher named Lydia McGrew who is not convinced by these explanations. After writing blog posts critically engaging this theory, she got significant pushback and decided to dive into the research in earnest. The result of that work is her recently published book, The Mirror and the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary uh, Devices, uh, which argues that literary device theory is not only unnecessary for resolving the discrepancies, but also may do more harm than good. Mm. So you've probably heard sermons or even had professors explain some of these differences via literary devices. And uh, she takes a pretty provocative, borderline, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Risky, yeah, it's a good word. Posture, I think, especially with dealing with something this sensitive. What do you, uh, what do you think of this? Well, I appreciate her saying my goal in writing this book is to show that the gospel authors were honest, clear reporters who were not deliberately changing the facts, but were trying to tell what really happened, and and that could be unnerving to us, right? Like, wait, are you saying they got some facts wrong, uh, or maybe they missed some uh, facts? But uh, what she's saying she wants to fight against is that some scholars, these literary devices involve gospel authors deliberately and invisibly changing the facts, the dates, altering details, inventing, putting things in Jesus's mouth, or even in some cases, possibly making up entire incidents. She's wanting to hold it up as, you know what, sometimes two different people can look at the same thing and see a little different, report different things. And so I appreciate at least the honesty here of mm. saying, uh, you know what, uh, these are these are people who were looking for different people who were looking at this uh, from four different angles. And I think uh, that's helpful to remember. Like, that's helpful. Um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate because she's trying to hold – you could tell she has a high view of Scripture, right? She's wanting to hold these as, as trustworthy and saying uh, some of these literary devices scare her because she feels like it tears away at the trustworthiness of the Which does not mean that the people that use them don't have a high view of Scripture. Agreed. I but I think that's what she's saying from her end. I just don't want to pit them against each other and say, totally well, agree. yeah, she's actually got a high view of Scripture. Totally agree. She doesn't buy into these literary Totally devices. agree. What do you say to the person that's like, okay, I'm just happy to read the Gospels and believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and I don't know why we're having this discussion at all. What would you say to that person? I, I would say, <laughs> I'd say, good, go for that. <laughs> no. Are you laughing because you're uncomfortable? Exactly. I think I would I would go down the pathway of listen. Uh, the Bible's more complex than we give it, but but we believe that, A, it's trustworthy, B, it's inspired, and all truth being God's truth, we could continue having these conversations and not be scared that if we get, you know, we're going to get too smart for now, the Bible's just going to crumble upon itself. So let's have these conversations, uh, and, and and it's going to be helpful. What would you say to those people? Yeah, I think uh, understanding and remembering that the Bible— was written for us, but it was not written to us mm-hmm. is always a helpful starting place because if we do somewhere have in our heads that the Bible was delivered to us in complete form by some chubby cherubs yeah. and that it was written in English and it was written from a Western post-enlightenment context or perspective, I think anytime we we superimpose that framework or those lenses onto a reading, which uh, is kind of, I'm sort of saying both. I think, yeah. that's, I think, this, uh, I think this woman has an incredible uh, wisdom in this area. I also think a lot of what I've read about literary devices to explain why these authors would write things differently than how I would write them mm-hmm. uh, have been helpful. helpful. So, you know, for me, it's kind of like Scott McKnight would say, you don't have just one golf club in your bag. Like, you need different Another clubs golf for different metaphor. reasons, right? Good. It's, I, think it's, I think it's important to say, you know, this is worth understanding because it's worth getting into the worldview and the 
framework sure. of the time of Jesus, but it doesn't mean that any of them are ever going to context matters. Totally These right. things all matter. Absolutely. Totally agree. And all you right. play, you played bass guitar in chubby cherubs. I sure did, man. We were, <laughs> that was a hardcore metal band that really, uh, really slapped. Anyway, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk Trump and prayer breakfast. What do you think about that? I like breakfast. <laughs> Hard hitting news here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope you're Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here, and after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was, and it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began, because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Coming up in the second hour, we're going to talk the prayer breakfast, discipleship, and why coffee is the best. This is The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us if you want to. Even if you don't want to, you still can. On Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. On Twitter at Common Good Talk. 1160hope.com slash The Common Good plus quite literally every podcast platform you or I or anyone on planet Earth could think of or conceive of. It's there already. And John does a great job of offering some of the descriptions in there. So if you're trying to find a particular segment, that's all laid out for you quite nicely. If you are a podcaster, a little subscribe rate and or review does help us out a whole lot. We're not quite sure how, but I know that it does. (laughs) It does. We promise. feel it deep in my soul, deep in my gut. And my gut's never been wrong. That's not true. Okay, so uh, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. We're going to talk prayer breakfast. Mm-hmm. We've talked about prayer breakfasts, breakfasts, breakfast breakfasts. What's plural of breakfast? Breakfasts. I ate three breakfasts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I that that was the example you used. I needed it plural. Fr- <laughs> Hard hitting. That's where we're going to start. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's newsworthy for a couple of reasons. Yep. Um, why don't you just give us your reaction rather than completely unpacking it. You saw it. You made some of the same observations that a lot of the uh, the pundits and yes. blogosphere are making. So Arthur Brooks, uh, he is a Harvard University professor and author. Uh, he was the main speaker, right? Uh, and, and so let me start here. The concept of the prayer breakfast, I'm very excited about. Like, great. Like, let's uh, – and the people who were there said it was very inspiring. Very like, excited was, about? I'm excited about it. The okay. concept of – Let's gather to pray for our uh, and encourage prayer for our leaders. Great. Um, both President Trump was there and Nancy Pelosi were there. So a little bipartisan. Um, and so they shake hands. I, I doubt that to be the case. Uh, but Arthur Brooks, 
He urged those in attendance not to let their disagreements over politics lead to contempt. He recalled speaking to a group of conservative activists and telling them their political opponents were neither evil nor stupid. And he said that line did not get much applause. He went in to talk about his background. uh, And then he said, Brooks said, Jesus asked his followers to love their enemies, not just tolerate them. Putting that into practice, he admitted, is hard. Amen to that, right? Then Brooks asked the crowd, how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? And we read here, many of the people in attendance raised their hands. President Trump sitting quietly a few feet away from Brooks. He did not. Uh, When Brooks finished his speech on mending political division by loving your enemies, uh, the president, his voice, voice horse, approached the podium and opened his remarks by lamenting that he and his family have been through a terrible ordeal. Uh, And then... Uh, He took a shot at at Pelosi and Mitt Romney, and he basically said, uh, I find the whole loving your enemies thing to be difficult. Uh, And so let me start first by going, he said, I'm sorry, I apologize, I'm trying to learn, he said, appearing to return to the question posed by Brooks. He said, when they impeach you for nothing, you're supposed to like them. It's not easy, folks, but I'm doing my best. That's what he said. Hmm. So first of all, what would you think about Brooks's message about loving your enemies really being a key component uh, to healing the political divide uh, that we all feel? I don't know how you could disagree with that. I want to receive it. No, I think he's off. (laughs) (laughs) He's not even in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, To me, that's that's low hanging fruit. I don't know how you can. I mean, and again, unless you're, you know, not a Christian, I'm saying explicitly under the umbrella of Christendom. Maybe even Orthodox Christianity, I would say that that's that to me is one on one. Yeah, yeah, and and so I, interestingly though, I think that's a really interesting crowd to share that message with. Like I, I would love to know kind of his thought process as he was prepping. Right, he probably could talk about whatever he wanted to, um, but it's difficult that even the president got up and said, "You know what? I really struggle with this," and uh, didn't raise his hand when talking about. And he's probably pretty angry about the whole impeachment thing and everything. Well, he did outright say to Arthur, I don't think I agree with you. Oh, did he really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the, you and I have talked. Does it feel like every day we talk about our discouragement about the current political <laughs> landscape? Uh, the common good. The common good. Discouraged over politics. <laughs> and so uh, it is hard to hear that message and to know what happened at the State of the Union like two nights before, three nights before, where uh, – and and – yeah, it's just difficult to to hear the rhetoric back and forth. And so I I don't know. I'm an optimist. I'm like, oh, gosh, I hope the right people heard his message there today or the other day. Uh, probably not the case. And and I don't know. That feels like something we need to be praying that our that our leaders actually start to take into account. Yeah. I just have a hard time believing it'll happen. <laughs> I, come I can, like, hear it in your tone, I too. do you come just... across so discouraged. I really am. <laughs> I really am so discouraged about our political landscape. Like even at the at the prayer breakfast, you would wish that some of the leaders got up and said, "You know what? He's right. <laughs> Let's well, go over and, this." And I know that the the uh, did you ever watch the the documentary The Family that was flying all no. over Netflix for a while? So mm-hmm. it's certainly there's a lot of holes in it, and a lot of people have come out and said, "I don't. This isn't um, necessarily like proper document documentary reporting." But in it, it talks a little bit about you know how in a lot of ways the prayer breakfast has been used to sort of leverage political gain. And Is that right? Meant that, yeah. So like, you know, what you said at the beginning of the segment, yes, I'm... I'm so when for- I said, hey, that's awesome. I love it. <laughs> right. This is where I want to add a caveat because I want to come across like a just a, you know, cranky curmudgeon. I'm obviously pro-prayer. Maybe that's not obvious. I am pro prayer. <laughs> Sometimes I'm skittish about prayer breakfast type I stuff gotcha. because that's of fair. some of the history of like how it's 
to me, uh, like just to give you a glimpse into my brain, it always drives me a dangerous little crazy. Place. Dangerous, super dangerous. When we like in church circles go, um, we're planning a service. We're like, all right, we'll pray to transition. What they mean is we'll pray so we get the band off or on the stage. <laughs> I'm like, there. no, no, no. If the band wants to get on the stage while we pray, yeah. that's fine. But we don't pray to transition. I hear you. In the same way, on a much bigger scale, to say, yeah, I'm pro prayer, but to see some of the ways it's been used overtly or subtly to bolster political opinions or to rally a certain political persuasion, Mm -hmm. that to me, rally whatever you want, however you want, that's fine. But to use prayer as sort of the guise, the umbrella by which you do that is, uh, I find, frustrating. But I, I, I just find it interesting when he, you know, he said, how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? And most of the hands went up. And I'm just looking at this photo of Trump not raising his hand. <laughs> I was like, maybe maybe he just like zoned out for a second or maybe that's really true for him that he doesn't actually find it possible to love someone that he disagrees with politically. Um, that discourages me, doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't that make you sad at some pastoral level? Like that's – yes. This doesn't feel like we were having these types of displays 10 years ago, and now it almost seems commonplace. I totally agree with you. And I, I so the question becomes, you know, what do we do with this? And I think because I, I, you know, I kind of joke about it, but I do feel some sort of level of despair over our political landscape. And the question becomes, like, what do you do? Like, we can't change, you know, the politicians in Washington. But you know what we can? We can be having this conversation with the people in our churches, yeah. the people listening to this radio show. Like right, his right. call to love your neighbors, to love your enemies, I should say, who you disagree with politically, maybe even spiritually or whatever else you disagree with them. Your call out there also is to love them. And maybe if more people in, in the grassroots, if you will, of churches were taking this call to love their enemies well then it wouldn't bother us so much when even our highest leaders are. But instead, there would be kind of this grassroots movement within Christendom that says, you know what, we're going to take Jesus's words uh, seriously here. I think I get more sad that I don't sense a lot of uh, just your everyday Christians, if you will, uh, living this out either. And and that we've bought into the political, I'm going to try to say politicization again, that we've bought into a lot of it. And we are as polarized as our, uh, as our uh, elected leaders are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we have these conversations every day and that maybe the takeaway here is uh, maybe don't point fingers about are our politicians owning love your enemies? Are we owning it first? Yeah. Yeah, are we owning fair. it? And are we willing to live that out? And what difference would that make in our neighborhoods, our churches? And then, and then hopefully it can exponentially grow from there. I also think it's really, really tough to hate someone that you're praying for. Mm-hmm. Like just in general, pray, Think of the person that you're most angry at right now. Pray for them what you pray for yourself and see if your heart doesn't get the change. I really think that's true. It's really, really hard to harbor hatred. I'm not saying you have to be best friends, but in general, you know, when we talk about Bible passages and references of praying for enemies, they they weren't talking about people you like disagreed with. They're talking about people that were killing you and your friends. Yeah. So the call to love your enemies isn't just the person on the other side of a political divide. It was literally a a challenge, a charge Mm -hmm. to the early church to love people that we're actively executing your brothers and sisters. Yeah. Like if that is the charge in that day and age, we can most certainly at least aim to start to try to love people who look and talk and act and vote a little differently than we do. Yeah. In this article, they, they take a guy named David Myhall, who was at his first time there. And I just love how this wraps it up about the call to love your enemies. He said, that's about the hardest thing a person can do. Yeah. And I think we have to acknowledge that and still say it's our calling. Totally. 
Well, before we uh, talk about why coffee is just amazing, <laughs> uh, I want to give you a little word from In Touch Ministries. The new year is underway, and our friends at In Touch Ministries want to bless you with a complimentary wall calendar called Blessed to Be the Church, featuring Charles Stanley's original photography of churches around the world. An inspirational Bible verse from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and motivational quote from Dr. Stanley accompany each and every photo. Get yours, Brian, today, absolutely free. Free. 1160hope.com slash contest, and everyone who signs up will be entered to win a copy of the Charles Stanley Life Principles Bible. So sign up today at 1160hope.com slash contest. Coming up next, we're going to talk about church discipline and how we actually walk discipleship and a little bit of why coffee is the best. Coming up next here on The Common Good. Everybody, I hope you're pumped up. That song always gets me gets you going. Gets me, gets me amped. Uh, my name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And uh, I teed it up. This is the story. Christians are big on relationships, but weak on discipleship and evangelism, mm. which, again, <laughs> are kind of churchy words anyway. Like, if you're not a church person, you're like, discipleship, evangelism. Like, really, discipleship is about formation. Yep. And evangelism is about sharing the gospel. So Invitation. So invita- yes. Ooh, look at yep. you, preacher yep. Brian. There it is. So essentially, what they're, they're making the claim is, like, we, we love relationship building, and we're pretty good at it. But when it comes to some of the nuts and bolts of, like, you know, what maybe you would call sanctification, mm. uh, we're not great at. And when it comes to actually sharing your faith, uh, we're not great there either. And it's sort of one of those preach the gospel always, uh, if necessary, use words, which I think is misattributed to right. St. Francis of Assisi. Um, but I'm curious, one, like what about this article stood out to you? And two, uh, how do you see this at play like in your in your own con- uh, in your own context? Are you guys better at this? Are you worse at this? Uh, it's interesting because if you asked me what our church is good at, I would say number one, it's relationships. Yeah, and so I do get this, and that's a good thing. I think that people long to be known and know other people, and so church is an avenue for doing that. And being a part of a family and being part of a church community is an avenue for doing that. And so I want to cheer this on. Uh, somewhere in the article here, it said uh, some 78 uh, percent of study participants said they developed significant relationships with people at their church. Like they, I want to applaud that and say that is awesome. Yeah. Uh, you and I both were part of churches with the word community in it. Uh-huh. And uh, we want to say, yes, we love that people here are finding relationships. They're becoming known by other people because we live in a culture that is lonely. And uh, loneliness pervades our culture, Christian, non-Christian alike. Uh, People long to be known. And so the question becomes, uh, can the church be a spot that is working against that, that is helping uh, cure that loneliness? And I think what we're seeing here is people are saying, yeah, my church does do that to some degree. The question becomes, what is the fruit of those relationships? And I think that's where it starts to break down a little bit here. Like, are those relationships... Do they have a discipleship element? To put it another way, are they helping me become formed, for, help forming me to be more like Jesus? Or are we looking for opportunities to share Jesus with other people? And that's where the statistics kind of say, you know what, we're, we're, not, we're not doing a great job as churches. Which, again, uh, to be fair or to play the other side or I don't, I'm trying not to say devil's advocate because I don't want to advocate for the devil. But, but uh, yes. in general, though, there, I, I, th- I think sometimes this trend is an understandable reaction to not want to treat people like projects, you know, mm-hmm. to not like, hey, it's about, uh, 
moving you down this road or moving the needle in your life. Like, I think we can desire these things for people and sometimes go about them in really like mechanistic ways yep. that feel very like, oh, the only reason you're talking to me is to evangelize to me. Yeah. Or the only reason you're making time for me is so you can quote unquote disciple me. Like, I think those are good cautions. Um, but it does feel a little bit like the pendulum has gone too far the other yep. direction. Some of these stats talk about even how infrequently Christ followers even pray for opportunities, which yes. I found that actually to be almost more convicting than anything else. It's not just that it is or isn't happening, but it's like, oh, we don't even see a value for it enough to pray for it, um, which, I, you know, I'll turn it on myself. I was convicted yep. by some of those statistics. Yep. Sometimes even in the work of being a pastor— you you can get so caught in the weeds of doing pastoral things that some of these other things can suffer. And we've talked even about <laughs> sort of the embarrassing um, skittishness we feel in even telling yeah. strangers we're pastors. Yep. Like, what is that? That is, at its base, um, one, embarrassing. But two, it is us veering away from opportunities to evangelize. Yeah. So to do that in a way that is authentic and honest, um, I think is really... It's, that's hard to master, and there are few, there are very few examples where I've seen it done well. To be honest, yeah. so yeah. how do we, how do we get better? You know, I think we model it, like you said, and I do think there are some systems. People are not necessary. Some people do this, but very few people go are have the ability to take a a kind of shallow relationship or even a growing relationship and change and and move it in the direction of a of a relationship that's helping me grow in my faith and asking the hard questions and this and that. And so I do think it's on the church to give some tools to help that happen and to paint a picture as to like, here's why that's important. The evangelism one for me is a little different because that's yeah, now right. that's no longer talking about the relationships within your church. And I right. do think that's true that this prayer element is a convicting one because Jesus says, pray uh, for the harvest, right? Pray that he'd send out workers. And then he's, you know, like kind of implied in that is you are the worker. Yeah, right. And <laughs> I but, think he does more than imply. A good point. Uh, <laughs> but then raising it to a level of prayer, raising it to that level, I think, is really powerful. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you always say it really well. And I forget exactly how I say it. But what we celebrate is. Go for it. What? I don't know what you're saying. Come on. It's your line always. <laughs> it's my line. And what we celebrate is what we replicate, what we do. Oh, that's even better. I think I say what's rewarded is repeated. There it is. <laughs> there it is. How about what is celebrated is what is replicated. Yes. <laughs> so, so many more syllables. So are we only celebrating? What are we celebrating as a church? you right. What do we say? Are we holding up people? Uh, and by celebrating, I mean, are we telling the stories of people uh, who have who are doing this kind of discipleship within the church right. and helping them see, oh, this isn't a crazy thing. I know that person. Are we celebrating and telling the stories of people who have even attempted to share their faith and it didn't go well? Like, right? Yeah, they froze and it was hard. Are we praying within our body for the opportunity, within our church for the opportunities to share these kind of things, right? Like it's, yeah. are we giving easy mechanisms to do it? I think there's things that we as churches can do to get a couple wins that will then grow a culture. And in, uh, just to say it out loud, uh, I know that some of you may be thinking like, oh, it's those darn millennials. It's the Gen Z. It's not, it's not true in terms yep. of age. Those 65 and older were the least likely to have discussed their faith with others. And the two other statistics you touched on it that really kind of uh, have me a little shaken is 27% uh, rarely or never uh, personally pray for opportunities, which I think then corresponds mm. with uh, less than half, 48%, said that they intentionally spend time with other believers to help them grow in their faith. So there, there is a, a level of intentionality that I think is um, 
is is missing. And I and I don't want to so elevate like, oh, if we just prayed more, right. it fixes itself. I think all of your your call and charge for mechanisms, for systems, for structures is really, really important. But without the prayer piece, I, I don't know that our heart is formed in the ways of Jesus that implement those practices well. I think you can be a church that with high efficiency yes. and maybe even high success can implement tactics. But if we don't actually have a heart for the people, whether it's people inside our church or we're discipling and walking alongside of, or those outside the church that we're just caring for and spending time with, yes. without the right heart posture, all of that is pharisaic. It, yeah, it, good. Is, it is legalism at best, and we might do it with a smile on our face, and we may even like enjoy, you know, the quote unquote results of a growing church yep. numerically, yep. or all that stuff can create a happy feeling. Yep. But I think it has to go deeper than that. It has it, to go deeper than implementation. And it's not just about the church. Like if you're listening there and you uh, you feel no motivation uh, to talk about your faith, to help other people grow, to have people in your life helping you grow. Uh, to love your neighbor and these kind of things. I think you need to look inward a little bit and be like, well, what's, what's, uh, what am I not grasping in my faith? What is there, there's a little bit of self motivation here because it's the answer is not that we're all busy. We are all busy, uh, but we're also lonely. People want to be known. Uh, it, 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 there, there needs to be a little bit of self reflection in all of us on yeah. this. This isn't just about church systems. Yeah, I totally agree. This, this is, I'll just end with this one because this one's like a punch of the stomach. Um, Many Christians have not had an evangelistic conversation, but the study found that over half, 55%, had invited a non-Christian to a church service or act uh, or activity in the last year. So so we're seeing, I think, um, a willingness to some degree to make the invite. And that's kind of why I think I want to end with this one, because I think so often these discussions, especially if you, if you didn't go to seminary or have mm-hmm. a Bible degree, you're like evangelism, discipleship, I don't know how to do any of those things. Like, okay, so maybe it just starts with maybe – if the only thing that you hear is us say, pray for the people in your sphere of influence and in your life and make the ask, Hmm. you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to cross every T and dot every I like, Hey, this community has been really formative for me over the last five years. And I would love for you to be a part of it. Would you join me next Sunday? Like that's all, that's all it needs to be. And I think one, I think people will be really honored, but I think two, the other thing is that when we actually do it, we'll realize it's not, actually as scary mm. as I think we often make it out to be. Absolutely. Which I think is really, really important. Well, you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. <laughs> oh, I just want to keep hearing that song. That's good. Oh, so good. So calm, which is the opposite of what coffee does to me. And we're going to get into it because there's a new study that says that coffee, even 25 cups a day, turns out it's not bad for your heart. In fact, you're going to live forever. So uh, (laughs) kick, let's do it. All right. So drinking coffee, even 25 cups a day, not bad for your heart. New study says we posted it online. People had all sorts of funny comments. One person said, uh, I'd like to see the person who's drinking 25 cups a day, which fun fact, when I worked at Starbucks in uh, high school and college, there was a woman every morning that would come through and order eight shots of espresso with one pump of mocha. Down the whole thing in front of us and no. then walk out the door. She's like, could you just hook it up into my vein it directly? It was so frightening. She's like, I'll have my eight shots mocha. And I'm like, uh, should you be operating a vehicle right now? Wow. Is this a good idea? So, yeah. So the point of this, I mean, the article is funny because I was just joking a couple of days ago about it seems like every three months I see an opposing article or research or study about coffee. One says 
if you have one more sip, you're going to die. The other says, drink it and you'll live forever. And then everything in between, nobody seems to agree. I like coffee, so I'm not going to stop. <laughs> but I, I do also have to admit, like I had a French press at home and then I broke it. And then rather than because I had kickstarted to support another one and it hadn't come in yet. So I was using like my wife's tea diffuser with grounds and this really like makeshift way. And it was so sloppy and messy, which goes to show the, the lengths that I'll go yeah. for a cup of coffee. The irony for me is that it seems like the origins of coffee were meant to be enjoyed, meant to be very social. And now we have coffee drive throughs where people are getting, you know, 16 gallon coffees and just yep. downing another way to work. So I'm curious, first and foremost, as a non-coffee drinker. Correct. What do you what do you think of the effects of coffee on a culture? And and like, what are some of the warning signs of articles like this that we may be heading in the wrong direction? <laughs> It's funny because, like you said, we posted this on Facebook and you could tell who the coffee drinkers and who aren't. Yeah, right. So uh, like my wife, it's interesting. Neither my wife or I ever really drank coffee when we were first married. And uh, it, that didn't change until we had our Carrie was pregnant with our third child, Emily. And when she was pregnant with our third child, my wife just all of a sudden got a taste for coffee. And now, man, like. Carrie cannot, uh, there is a decided difference in her, uh, like her own energy level, whether she has coffee or not in the morning. It's really funny. Uh, whereas I, I don't drink coffee at all, but I, we've all got our own addictions. I used to drink Diet Coke like it was going out of style. And then I realized I read all the studies about Diet Coke. Right. And now it's like frying your brain. And so now I just drink iced tea, unsweetened iced tea all day long. That's I have one in front of me well, think, at this very moment. You think moment. you're better than us? Is that what you're saying? That- no, I think it's got its own problems, <laughs> <laughs> the caffeine and such. And so uh, I don't know, man. Coffee, I think it keeps people going. I think people are exceptionally tired in our culture and running crazy. And coffee helps give them energy. And I read we've got an article here. Here are 10 reasons why you may want to quit coffee. And it talks a lot about associative uh, addictions and how coffee uh, uh, acts like those and how they hurt you and other stuff. And then we've got this other study that says you could drink all this coffee and it's not even bad for your heart, which (laughs) I have trouble believing because I think too much caffeine supposedly is bad for your heart. And 25 cups of coffee seems to be an issue. Uh, But I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. And so I don't think that coffee, it is what it is. Like, I don't know. There's probably much deeper thinkers, people going, well, if you need coffee to get through life, then you've got problems. Probably true, but I think there's a lot less worse, a lot worse things we can use in our lives to get through the day. So I do not judge you coffee drinkers. That's what I'm saying. I do not judge you as a, as a <laughs> non-coffee we're, we're drinker. We're feeling a little judged, Brian. I do, not dr- I do not judge you at all. That's not what your face is saying right now, though. <laughs> I, I don't. Your voice might be saying that. I'm going to read these 10 reasons through gritted teeth because I am an avid coffee drinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they're pretty interesting. Number one, the caffeine in coffee increases catecholamines, your stress hormones. Number two, hab- uh, habituation to caffeine decreases insulin sensitivity. Number three, unfiltered coffee has the highest amount of beneficial uh, antioxidants, yet also leaks the most diterpenes diter- into your system. I don't know what that is. Number four, the helpful clarogenic acids that may delay glucose absorption in the Intestine have also been shown to increase. I see. I should have known that I'm not going to be able to read any of these words. <laughs> Homocysteine levels. Number five, the acidity of coffee is all is associated with digestive discomfort. Number six, addition is often an issue with coffee drinkers. It makes it really difficult to rely on the body's natural source of energy. Number seven, associative addiction uh, addictions trend with coffee. Number eight, five H. IA, an organic acid and component of the neurotransmitter serotonin, the happy chemical seen in the urine, tends to be elevated in coffee drinkers. 
Number nine, elevated urinary excretion of important minerals such as calcium, magnesium, and potassium have been noted in coffee drinkers. And number 10, constituents in coffee, constituents in coffee, I used to play bass in constituents in coffee, can interfere (laughs) with normal drug metabolism and detoxification in the liver. So it seems like there is actually some decent scholarly work to support that this is maybe not a good idea. Do you know what the big secret is? I'm not going to stop. I was just going to ask you that question. Does any of that at all give you even five seconds worth of pause well, as to whether you should still drink I coffee. I couldn't even read most of the words, so how, right. how bad could it be? So if that person's study was definitive and it said coffee is not ideal for you, like, would you stop drinking coffee? And neither is Taco Bell, but I'm still going there every once Amen, in a while. brother. See, none of this is like... Eventually, you do a cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> and that's what I did. I need, and some of you out there, you drink lots of Diet Coke. I used to drink a ton of Diet Coke and then I got spooked by some of the studies. And to be honest with you, the more Diet Coke I drank, the worse I felt. It was giving me huh. headaches. Uh, it was doing weird things to me. And I was craving it. Like, it was all just weird. And so I cut Diet Coke out of my life. I replaced it with something else. My guess is reading that list, you're going to do a cost-benefit analysis. You're going to go, you know what? I like coffee. And it helps me get up in the morning. I'm going to keep drinking coffee. Like, that's why these are fun to talk about. So what but Brian I don't know. Fromm is saying is truth is relative. There is no when absolute it, truth that morality coffee, doesn't matter, that ethics are just a made up construct. I, when it comes to coffee, I think that's true. <laughs> oh, you do. That's okay. Well, that's that's a slippery slope, Brian. <laughs> I love we go so inside baseball. And it's like, it's assuming, not inside baseball. It's the same show. People have been listening for it's all the two same hours. Show. They're it's not podcasters. The podcasters listening at twice the speed. That was just that was just thirteen minutes ago they're, for them. They're going to think you're so hyped up on coffee right now because you're just going, going, going. The answer is true, but it is pretty interesting though. And I actually used this illustration in a Easter sermon years ago when uh, I, I brought a Taco Bell burrito on the stage, Ooh. and I talked about how uh, a number of my friends had said. Do you know that's not real meat and there's all this ingredient, blah, 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 blah. And my answer to them was, yeah, but it's delicious. Yeah. Like I don't. And what I said was so often when it comes to God, we just want to kind of bury our heads in the sand. Like, I don't actually really care what's true. I just want Mm. what feels good to me. And I'm just like not to get too existential on this coffee conversation. But this is, I think, a prime example where there's two opposing articles right there of scholarly sources saying it's going to kill you. You're going to live forever (laughs) and you're going to choose whatever category that best fits your ethos or your experience, which can get really tricky. When it's about more serious topics, when it comes to coffee, I think ah, it's inconsequential at best. But when it comes to matters of morality or ethic or ethos or pathos, I think that kind of stuff gets really, really tricky um, because there, I think, are things. And we say often on the show that we want to enter into the gray, enter into the murky territory. But that doesn't mean that sometimes, especially as pastors, we have to stand back and say, hey, I know that we disagree on this. Yep. This behavior is toxic yep. or this isn't okay in our organization. And that's really hard, I think. And I think coffee is a weird, long jumping off point for us it to is. say sometimes, sometimes black and white actually really does matter. And and it's worth it for us to actually learn how to, how to articulate that well. So are you still going to drink coffee? Oh, 100%. I'm drinking it right now. I'm drinking it right now. You absolutely the are. The hypocrisy of saying all of that as I like chug from this two-gallon mug <laughs> is not lost on me, which leads me to how we like to land the plane yep. each and every day with some interweb insanity that we did not find, our executive producer found, and we're going to experience that together as friends on the radio. Doesn't that sound fun? Right here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. 
Well, friends, that music can mean one thing and one thing only. I said that completely wrong yesterday, by the way. Did you? I said, how did I say it? That music can mean one and only thing. <laughs> I like that. I think I've said that multiple times, actually. I'm afraid to go back and listen. Anyway, what I'm saying is, what I'm really getting at, what I'm driving at, friends, is it's the end of the show. And for as long as we've had a show, we've ended the show this way, where our producers find a few stories that we have not read, the sound effects we have not heard. Brian and I read them both, sight unseen. Both? There's it's usually five. Simultaneously. I don't know where both is coming from. I should learn to talk before doing a show ever again. At least you don't speak for a living. That's yes, true. In every <laughs> facet of my life. If my, my teeth fall out, it's that's it. You're I, done. I'm <laughs> just going to move to the coast. But uh, we read them, we laugh, we giggle, we cringe right alongside you. Brian, why don't you kick us off? Canada. Ooh. Battle between Yukon neighbors ends with alleged Roomba attack. We've all been there. A Yukon neighborhood is on edge after one of their neighbors went on a violent spree, allegedly throwing fecal matter, breaking down a fence, and barricading himself inside his home. Eventually, the bomb squad and the SWAT team were called out, and he was taken into custody. The or- ordeal was all captured on video. Uh, I told him, if you break through this fence, I will have to shoot you, David Bard said. Wow. David Bard had his gun hand oh, gun in hand after his neighbor John Stafford was allegedly trying to break down their shared fence with a Roomba vacuum cleaner. I was scared for my family, Baird said. Well, well, look who matriculated to grade nine. Someone wants to get into university. <laughs> hey, guys, I'm sorry. Well, you're going to be sorry when we put you in the hospital for free, eh? Oh, because of Canada. I think Ryan's so. not with us right now. I am with you. I was listening. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I heard that Keith Conrad actually has a Roomba story that maybe we'll have him on sometime. Yeah, tell it's, us. My, it's a good one. My parents bought us a Roomba that my children are terrified of. Oh, I thought you, th- I thought you told a story they liked them. They would like cheer it on. They did to and start. now they're terrified. Yeah, first it was like, go Boobots! That was for about an hour and a half. And now anytime it turns on, they both come running screaming to me. But uh, that's more information than you wanted. <laughs> uh, Australia, 300,000 disease-ridden bats launch dive bomb attacks on kids as they invade town. As the bats invade town, not the kids. Not the kids. I don't think Still the kids are invading careful town, with right? the uh, headline there. For A me. nightmarish swarm of bats have taken over an Australian town, causing some parents to pull their kids out of school. Yeah, no kidding. Over fears they will be attacked. The fruit bat population in Ingham, 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 small town in North Queensland, has exploded over the past few months with more than 300,000 creatures taking up residence in their trees. You should see the photo, by the way. It's terrifying. Many children at the school are too scared to go to their classes after a bat colony has moved in behind the building. Adam and Susan Carulla fear their two daughters might get attacked at the school. Miss Carulla told a current affair they are not stepping a foot on that ground until something is being done. Holy rainbow. Holy Cinderella. Holy homecoming. Holy shrinkage. Holy bouncing boilerplate! Holy reincarnation! I mean, I know that. Okay. That was good. <laughs> Just a random assortment of uh, Robin yeah. explanations. Uh, Ukraine. Ukrainian textbook oh, uses Keanu Reeves meme instead of a historical photo. The whole Ukraine is too soon. Yeah, all of it. The whole topic. <laughs> American actor also Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves made a surprise appearance in Ukrainian textbook. A 10th grade history textbook used the famous 1932 photo, Lunch Atop a Skyscraper, which I always find terrifying, to illustrate a chapter on the U.S. in the interwar period. But the book mistakenly used a Photoshop version of the photo that (laughs) added Keanu Reeves as the 12th worker lunching on the crossbeam some 260 meters above the ground. The image combines the sad Keanu (laughs) meme craze, which started when a paparazzi photo of Reeves eating a sandwich on a park bench went viral 
in 2010 with memes that provide evidence that the actor is immortal by photoshopping him into various photos. The textbook was published in 2018 and was in circulation for two years before someone spotted an odd figure in the famous photo. Socrates, the only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. That's us, dude. Oh, yeah. A new Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure coming out this year, right? Mm-hmm. And I will see it in theaters, unashamedly. I, I will try to, too. Yeah? We'll do it together. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it is, how is there not a gatekeeper on this kind of stuff? Like, that blows my mind. Did I tell you, though, I used to, like, intentionally put typos in our church bulletin just to see if people would catch them? You did tell me Very few people caught yes. them. Uh, all right, India, Mumbai test traffic lights that stay red if you honk your horn. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Police in India have come up with an ingenious plan to cut noise pollution by making vehicles wait longer for traffic lights to go green if they honk their horns too loudly. Fed up with the din? Yes. Din? Kind of a low-level noise. Oh. I, I have tinnitus. I can't hear any of that. <laughs> From car horns in their city, Mumbai police conducted a trial in November and December last year in which decibel meters were connected to traffic light poles. If the meters registered noise levels of 85 decibels or over, that's pretty loud, the lights were reset and stayed red for longer. I pity those poor suckers on the freeway. Gas break, hog. Gas mm-hmm. break, hog. Hog, hog, punch. Gas, gas, gas. All right, last one. My home state of New Jersey. Oh, America's a, uh, paradise. Oh, yeah, he said it last night. A New Jersey high school student's Chewbacca prank has us and South Jersey roaring. If you consider a prank a Jedi mind trick, Noel Hecht is clearly strong with the Force. Uh, Hecht, a freshman at Haddon Township High School, pulled off a masterful Star Wars-themed prank. He hung scores of flyers around South Jersey and Philadelphia advertising a Chewbacca roar contest, <laughs> asking fan of Han Solo's furry friend to call a number and leave a voicemail with their best Chewy impression. He offered a $50 reward. The number belonged to one of Hex's unsuspecting friends who had a voice mailbox filled with roars and growls. Hex told the Philadelphia Choir he picked a friend as the target of the prank because he knew he was, quote, good at taking jokes and thought he'd find it <laughs> funny and would actually listen to the voicemails. <laughs> That's good. All right. So in conclusion, Brian, can I hear your best Chewbacca impression? Well, that's not going to be good. I, I <laughs> hey, You weren't kidding. You go. <laughs> you try. Well, we're all out of time. Nope. Here, you got to go. Okay. Come on. Is <laughs> <laughs> that close? Not even close. <laughs> well... <laughs> We've uh, we've uh, finally good way to end the show. <laughs> yeah. We've fallen off the wagon here a bit. Anyway, we'll hope you join us again tomorrow from four to six p.m. on AM eleven sixty. This has been the Common Good. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you tomorrow.